Hey, Pastor Sean here. Thank you so much for checking out our sermons online. I want to let you know whether this is your first time watching one of our sermons or you're just reviewing a sermon that you've heard here on the campus. I will welcome you, but I do want to let you know we have a core value at Coastal Community Church, and that core value is that you find a local church to be a part of. And so uh, if this, hopefully this sermon series or this sermon is supplementing your spiritual growth, but I want to encourage you to find a, a local church. If you live in the Yorktown, Virginia area, we would love for you to visit us. We have three services, uh, 8 o'clock, 9, 30, and 11, and we meet at 101 Village Avenue. Thank you so much for checking out this sermon online. I hope it encourages your walk and your journey with Jesus Christ. Well, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. Last week, we, um, we had the opportunity to hear about how the Lord solved the great conflict, and Pastor Sean, he reminded us that that he solved this, this conflict that, that we had with him because of our sin, uh, because he wanted to, because of his good character, his unchanging character. He, he saved us. He resolved this conflict because um, he wanted to bring himself glory by pursuing us. And in this sermon, Pastor Shani touched on the end of this discourse here in Matthew chapter 18, and that's what I want to spend time on. And so, like I said, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there if you... Don't own one. There should be one there in the seat in front of you. But I want to spend time on this issue as we can continue with this, this peacemaking series, Harvest of Peace. I want, to, I want to spend time on this issue of confrontation for a few minutes. Most people, they don't, they don't like confrontation. If you're anything like me, you don't like confrontation. And, and I have this theory why we don't like confrontation. And, and it, it's that we tend to rehearse uh, confrontation in our heads a lot, don't we? At least I, I, I do this whenever I, I have to have a, a confrontational conversation. I'm playing out all the different scenarios, and it tends to go, okay, when I say this, this person's going to come back, and, and they're going to say this, and then I'll counter with this approach, and then they'll counter with that approach, and then they'll punch me in the face, and and on and on it goes. And so com conversations, they always escalate in our heads, don't they? Right? It, it typically is a whole lot worse in our heads than when it actually happens in reality. And by the time that we finish processing this, this the theoretical conversation or this theoretical confrontation that, that we're going to have, we're so worked up by the time we actually have the conversation that we can't even get our point across, can we? And so we want to avoid all the potential horrible outcomes that we come up with in our head. And so our tendency can then be to just fall silent and internalize it and not actually approach a brother or a sister in Christ with a, a, a confrontational um, type of conversation. And so what we do is, we, is when we fall silent, when we do internalize it, we just end up leaving. We, we leave our spouse we leave our children, we leave our families, we leave our jobs, we leave, we'll move, we'll leave our neighborhoods to avoid confrontation, and we even leave our local churches, don't we? Right? We, we hear of church splits, we hear of, of people that come from other churches to this local church, and, and, and certainly there, there are times where that's warranted, but most times... It's because we wanted to avoid some sort of confrontational conversation. And so we leave, and all of this happens because we have an improper perspective on confrontation. 
We're surprised by confrontation. We're, we're shocked when we're presented with it, and, and we see it for the most part as a distraction from what God would have us to do, right? Not this again. Like, I'm, I'm too busy doing God's work to be distracted with this thing, this annoyance, this, this interruption. So we do absolutely everything in order to avoid it. And the problem is, is that we, we can't avoid it, not really. And God's called us as believers to embrace con- confrontation. So I want to wade through Matthew 18 because I believe it gives us some proper handles when, when kind of viewing confrontation from God's perspective. Uh, this passage, if you're familiar with it, uh, deals with what's commonly called church discipline. And the, the, the scope of this sermon, it, it's, it's, I'm not going to spend time, if you're familiar with this passage, on verses 17 through 20, where there's this final judgment that's, that's passed on a professing believer. And by the way, final judgment passed on a professing believer means we engage with this person in a different way, right? We now engage them as an evangelist. But I'm not going to spend time on that. If you want to hear a sermon on that, Pastor Sean's preached on it many times, and and we'll post it on uh, social media for you this afternoon. But what I want to look at is twofold. I want to I want to examine the purpose behind confrontation, and then I want the purpose behind confrontation to to give us handles on how to confront in a way that honors the Lord. I believe what we'll work through this morning is is relevant to absolutely every single believer in this room, and it's relevant to every relationship that you have in your life. And primarily, I hope that we can grow as a church to to apply the things that we're going to learn this morning inside this local church as we seek to to link arms with one another and persevere in our confession of faith. And so let's read our text, and I'm going to pray, and then we'll We'll jump right in with some observations. But Matthew chapter 18, starting with verse 10, the Word of God says this. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains... And go in search of the one that went astray. And if he finds it, truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it's not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Now notice that Jesus, he continues his discourse and he moves right into this section on confrontation or what we know as church discipline here. Verse 15, if your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to to you, you've gained a brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, the relationship shifts. You're evangelizing him now, treating him as an unbeliever. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Would you pray with me? 
Heavenly Father, I pray, God, that you would help us, Lord. Help us to understand this passage, God. Help us to be conformed more into the image of Jesus as a result of spending time in your word this morning as your church. And God, I just pray that, um, God, that the things that we learn this morning, God, that we would apply them in this local church for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So I've divided this sermon into two sections, and it should be reflected in your notes. This first section we're going to look at is we're going to spend some time uh, understanding uh, purpose behind confrontation, or, or better said, God's purpose behind confrontation. And the first thing you need to know if you're taking notes is that biblical confrontation demonstrates the worth and value of every single believer. Biblical confrontation demonstrates the worth and value of every single believer. One pastor says this about Jesus' parable of the lost sheep and how it's connected to biblical confrontation. He says, The Father's concern for sinners and the shepherd's rescue of those who have wandered from the fold are now to be the church's concern. The church confronts because we value each and every sheep, even and especially the straying sheep. Now, this is why it's crucial for us to, to have the parable of the lost sheep included in this section on confrontation. That God the Father, through the person and work of Jesus, seeks and reconciles to himself every single one of his sheep. Every single one of his children. I think about, uh, for a moment, this picture that Jesus is giving of his sheep. None of them perish, according to this passage. Not a single one of them perish. That's what the Lord's teaching us through this parable of the lost sheep here. Now, I have no experience whatsoever in raising sheep, but I was doing some reading as I was preparing for the sermon this morning, and what I've learned about sheep is that they eat all the time. They're just constantly eating, right? They're, they're time and their mind is consumed with eating all day long, Every day, right? And, and they're so consumed with this obsession of eating that, that they're not aware of anything else, and including other sheep. They're not even aware that maybe they've wandered off from the rest of the sheep. And so oftentimes they, they, they get separated from the rest of the flock because they never look up or bother themselves with being aware of their surroundings, right? They're, they're, they're simple-minded in that way. And on top of that, they eat so much that they often need to lie down in order to digest their food. But the problem is, is that they need the shepherd to help them lie down in order to digest the food that they've eaten. And by the way, that should give us a whole new picture when we read what? Psalm 23, right? He makes me lie down in green pastures. But sheeps also, on top of that, on top of needing to be guided to lay down so that they can digest their food properly because they eat all the time, uh, they often get turned on their backs, and that's dangerous because sheep need gravity in order to survive. When they're on their backs, all their blood leaves their feet, and their stomachs can't digest any of the food that they eat. And they, on top of that, can't breathe either. And so if a shepherd isn't being attentive to the sheep, uh, and a sheep gets caught on its back, uh, it quickly uh, can die if, if there's not a, a watchful eye over the sheep. 
And then in addition to that, they're helpless from predators. And because of their constant eating and their lack of awareness in regards to their surroundings, they wander off cliffs and plummet to their death. So needless to say, sheep need the constant attention, this watchful, careful, patient eye. They need the attention of their shepherd, right? They need this this patient, loving shepherd, And according to the scripture, according to the passage that we're looking at, Jesus is the shepherd of his sheep, which is what the scripture refers to us a lot lot of times. Jesus was sent by God the Father to give care and attention to every single one of the sheep. And the scripture makes the claim that as feeble-minded as the sheep may be, as, as often as they may stray, not a single one of them will be lost. Isn't that comforting? Not a single one of them will be lost. The Lord is and continues to be patient in the way that he cares for you, in the way that he cares for me. Now, that's what Christ has done for us, right? He sought us. He saved us. He continues to seek us. He continues to seek other sheep that that haven't come into the fold yet and saved them, according to Luke 19.10. And so Jesus, he gives this, this visual to us in, in parable form here to, to, to reiterate the importance to God of every individual sheep. And he moves seamlessly from, from what he's done and what he does for a sheep, and he, and he moves to this dialogue about confrontation, in, starting in verse 15, right? Now, it seems to me that, that from our text that, that the Lord considers this seeking out Right? This, this shepherding, this watchful lie, this, this careful attention to sheep, he considers this a ministry that should be emulated, right? Not only is Jesus our shepherd and our savior, but he's also our example, right? We read about that in the book of Philippians. The apostle Paul uh, sets up, props up Jesus and reminds us he's not only our savior, but he's, he's someone we should model. He's someone that we should emulate. And by the power of God's Holy Spirit, we do that. We can do that imperfectly, sinfully, with plenty of flaws, but we can do it and it should be our pursuit to do that, right? So we should emulate this ministry of seeking out wandering sheep, right? We should be like our savior, a patient and an attentive shepherd. So as Christians, we, we need to pursue, and we should be pursuing those who claim the name of Jesus and who are living in rebellion to their profession. And we do that because of our love for Christ. We do that because of our love for our brothers and sisters. And we do that because God's word commands us to do it. And we'll get to that a little bit more in a moment. So, so what's the, the, the purpose of seeking out wandering and drifting sheep, right? We've begun to answer that already, but, but let's get some more clarity on it. Biblical confrontation is concerned with family restoration, right? That's, that's the purpose there. Biblical confrontation is concerned with family restoration. And there, there are two types of restoration, I believe, we found, find in this passage of Scripture. And the first type is restoration to God, Restoration to God, right? Verse 14 says, so it's not the will of my Father who is in heaven, right? It's not God's will that one of these little ones should perish, right? None of God's sheep will perish, right? That's what the passage is saying. None, not a single one. 
It can't be derailed. His plan to save his, his sheep can't be thwarted. Job declares in Job 42.2, I know that you, speaking of God, can do all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. That's Job's declaration after all the stuff that Job went through. And God, he uses his church as this means of perseverance, right? As this means to herald the need for a straying sheep, a wandering sheep to be restored to God. Hebrews 3, 12 through 14, it seems like we've went over this verse several times over the the course of this year, but 3, 12 through 14 says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day as long as it's called today so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we share in Christ. If we hold fast the confession, our original confidence, firm to the end, Right, so there's this exhorting, there's this encouraging that the Hebraic author is, is calling the church to do for the purpose that God's people won't be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. And so as sheep, God uses the Holy Spirit and his word through the ministry of his church to keep us from wandering. That's what the Lord, that's a, that's a, um, a, 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 a distribution of grace that God gives us to ensure that we're persevering in this confession. Right? And no, not only are we, we sheep as God's church, but we're also these under-shepherds, right? And we're called to link arms with other sheep, other under-shepherds, and, and, and lovingly and patiently warn of sin's deceitfulness. We shouldn't shy away from that responsibility. Okay, so, so family restoration is concerned first and foremost with restoration to God. That's what we're heralding. That's what we're calling wandering sheep to. And then secondly, family restoration, biblical confrontation is concerned about restoration to the local church. There's this restoration to the local church. The word brother used in scripture, we see that a lot. The word brother means every believer, Every believer, there's even some of your translations may say brothers and sisters because it's lost on us in today's uh, modern language that the word brother would encapsulate all of God's people. But the word brother used in scripture means every believer. Verse 15 says, if your brother sins against you, and some of your translations may even omit sins, uh, the word against you and just say if your brother sins, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens you've gained a brother. We just finished going through a sermon series uh, this past summer on the book of 1 Corinthians. And, and one of the, the first things that should be evident to us and one of the takeaways we should have had from the book of uh, 1 Corinthians is that, that uh, Paul used the Corinthians' union with Christ and union with one another as the basis for which he called them to repent and look to Jesus. Right, so he, the Apostle Paul's strategy was to use the church at Corinth's union with Christ and union with one another as the basis to call them to repent of sin and look to Jesus Christ. Right, because we enjoy union with one another that's grounded and fueled by our union with Christ Jesus, it should grieve us when someone in this local assembly, this body of believers, strays and begins to indulge in habitual unrepentant sin. That should grieve us. 
Right? 1 Corinthians 12 talks about being members of one another. Right? The unloving thing for us to do that we oftentimes default to, the unloving thing would be to say, well, that's on them. Or what do we hear a lot of times? That's none of my business. Like I don't want to insert myself. Right? Or sometimes we just ignore it completely. We just kind of let the wandering sheep go on wandering, don't we? And certainly have other local churches, and I'm being generous by calling them local churches, that ignore sin completely. Right? They may talk about it from the stage. There may be this public exhortation about stage, but behind the scenes, private, one-on-one conversations, there's no conversation with the members of the local church about sin's deceitfulness and the need to flee sin. So it can be easy, the easy thing to do, which is the unloving thing to do, which the Bible says is the hateful thing to do, is to ignore sin completely. We've got to realize that the moment that we become members of a local church, we're confessing our neediness for Christ Jesus and our neediness for one another. We need both. That's the way God's designed it. It's a contradiction to say, well, I just, need, I just need Jesus, and I'm going to go out and live as an isolated Christian. I can't find that type of Christian anywhere in the Scriptures. That type of Christian doesn't exist. The God who saves you, the Jesus that you're confessing that you need, is the same Jesus that established his local church and gave clear instructions for how we're to relate with one another inside the context of this local assembly. So we're a needy people for both Jesus and for one another. Okay, so the aim of the purpose, if you will, of biblical confrontation is, is restoration. And confrontation is the, is the means that God uses to, to provide that restoration. And as a side note, just for a moment, what about non-believers? Right, we're, we're talking about what, how we're interacting with one another as, as God's local church. But what about those who aren't believers? Right, this is the importance of evangelism. Sometimes evangelism can, can be confrontational, right? But we should be in a relationship with those who aren't believers, and we should be mindful of conflict and of confrontation when we interact with non-believers, understanding that the way that we handle conflict and confrontation around non-believers may or may not give us the on-ramp or the ability to speak in their life in, in regards to the eternal state of their soul, right? We're getting ready to go into the holidays, aren't we? We're going into Thanksgiving, and then after that will be uh, Christmas, and after that we have New Year's, don't we? And, and so we're going to spend a lot of time with maybe people we don't spend a whole lot of time with because we don't have a whole lot in common outside we're related to one another, right? You sit around an awkward family dinner or a family meal, and... And you know that maybe politics is going to, like there's just going to be these, this clash of worldviews, if you will. And what I find and what I challenge people with, uh, Christians with that, that I engage with is, is I think the local church, I think sometimes we feel like we, we need to fix unbelievers, right? We need to fix people that, that have a different worldview than us. We need to fix people that, that, um, that aren't believers by making sure that they know that we disagree with their worldview and and we need to make sure that they know that we think they're living an immoral lifestyle. That makes for a pretty awkward family dinner, doesn't it? Their problem isn't their worldview. Their problem isn't their immorality. Their problem is their unbelief. According to Romans 1, it's their unbelief that separates them from the Lord. 
all their outward mess, the, the, the bad worldview, right, the immorality, that's an outworking. Those are outward manifestations of unbelief. And so we should probably spend some more time introducing them to Christ, right, and then, and then allow, allow the Holy Spirit to begin to convict them. And work. what we proclaim oftentimes is you've got to get your stuff together, and then I'll tell you about Jesus, right? Get, fix yourself, then come to Jesus, or, or we make coming to Jesus just off-putting by focusing so much on their approach to the voting booth than we, we do on the gospel. So we, we, need to be, we need to be careful the way that we're engaging with unbelievers and make sure that we're emphasizing the right thing. And so the way that we handle conflict, the way that we handle confrontation, even around the dinner tables uh, over the holidays... Uh, can really uh, make or break whether or not you're going to be the person that helps to introduce another, uh, an, an unbeliever to Jesus Christ. And so we need to be mindful that, that people need Christ. They don't need a better worldview. We, we preach morality enough. Okay, so, so we've identified the purpose of confrontation. And, and what we need to do now is, is, is the purpose behind confrontation, we need to see that it gives us some riverbanks. Okay, it gives us some riverbanks for how we actually do confrontation in a way that honors the Lord. And because we're sheep and because we're feeble-minded, we, we need a guide. And Jesus is faithful uh, to give us this guide. He gives us the, the how to do it, if you will. So he shifts from talking about how the Lord seeks and saves one lost sheep and moves into how he's entrusted the church with the task. And he gives us tangible directions here in section two. And so section two is how to confront Christians, okay? If the goal of confrontation is restoration, it should be done in a certain manner. If the goal of confrontation is restoration, it should be done in a certain manner. And what I want to do for a few minutes before we get into specifically how Jesus lays out how we're to converse with other believers, I want to get into some implications that I think we can pull um, being that uh, confrontation's goal is restoration. So first... We should, in regards to how we should do it, we should do it prayerfully, right, in this dependent posture, right? This is something that should be implied. We, we should see this because we especially just finished a sermon series on the Lord's Prayer, but we, we shouldn't do anything apart from being in this prayerful, dependent posture, right? Prayer is this admission that we're completely dependent on on the Lord and, and, and that we're trusting the Lord, right? It's this confession for God's will to be accomplished. First John 5, 14 says, and this is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And we know that it's God's will for us to confront our brothers and sisters who are being deceived by sin, right? So, so we need to lift up our, our God-centered confrontations to the Lord knowing that he hears you and he will accomplish his plan and his purpose through you as you confront for his glory. Does that make sense? Secondly, we need to do it humbly, right? So we do it prayerfully in this dependent posture. We also need to do it humbly, right? This is where the, um, uh, if you're familiar, uh, if you've been in church life for any length of time, the log spec discourse that we see Jesus have, right? In Matthew 7, 3, Jesus says, why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log 
that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Braden and I are doing, uh, my wife and I are doing this devotional in the evenings right now. And one evening, the devotional spent time uh, on this particular passage. And what the devotional said is that before you confront anybody, we should be sure that we've applied the judgment that we're going to use to confront our brother or sister in Christ. We need to make sure that we've applied that judgment to ourselves. Right? We need to be sure that we're not being deceived by sin's deceitfulness. And we need to see ourselves as the Apostle Paul saw himself, right? The Apostle Paul calls himself the chief of sinners, doesn't he? So we should, as Christians, follow Paul's example and see ourselves as the chief of sinners, right? It, 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 that's the significance of Jesus saying that there's, a, there's logs in our own eyes, right? There's logs in our own eyes. It's healthy for us, and I hope you hear me, church. It's healthy for us to see our sin as bigger and worse than the sins of our brothers and sisters. It's important for us to see our sin as bigger and worse than the sin of our brothers and sisters. That fosters for us humility, right? This chief of sinners mentality fosters and fuels for us humility. When we see when we see our sin as big and as grievous to God, we begin to see our brothers and sisters' sin as a speck. And when we see our brothers and sisters' sin as a speck, how do we get a speck out? When you have a loved one or a friend that has a speck in your eye, what do you do? You kind of blow it out, don't you? Like you're real delicate in the way that you remove a speck out of someone's eye. And I think Jesus is using that so we see biblical confrontation in that way. We have the log in our eye, our brother, our sister has a speck in their eye, therefore we approach it delicately so that we can effectively remove it without causing harm and damage or a distraction away from God and the gospel. So Lord, may we be, may we be gentle, right? may we be humble, may we be prayerful as, as we engage with people that are deceived by sin. Next, we need to be truthful. Right, being gentle and being delicate in the way that we remove the speck out of someone's eye doesn't mean that we aren't truthful. Right? It doesn't mean that we're unclear. It doesn't mean that we beat around the bush. Right? Being unclear or beating around the bush when you're engaging in a confrontational conversation is a very unloving thing to do. But it's, it, it says, I, I want this person to like me more than I want to be obedient to God and his word. Right, and so, so beating around the bush is a very selfish approach to biblical confrontation. And certainly Nathan is an example for us when he confronts King David. And King David, if you're familiar with that story, he commits adultery with Bathsheba, then he murders her husband, Uriah, right? And Nathan comes to David and says this, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came and said to him, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich, the other poor, and the rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little lamb which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children, and used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb, prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who's done this deserves to die and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And then Nathan responds, you are the man. You're the man. 
right? And we know because we have the completed canon of Scripture that David, especially in Psalm 51, he's broken, broken over his sin, right? Faithful are the wounds of a friend that led Nathan, or led David to repentance. We need to be urgent. We need to be urgent. Proverbs 28, 13, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. And then John in Revelation 3, 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Right? Con- confronting in an urgent manner communicates the seriousness of sin. Right? We shouldn't call for believers to repent of sin tomorrow. We should call believers to repent of sin and rest in Jesus today. Right? We don't want to delay God-centered confrontation. We're, we're stewards of today. We're not stewards of tomorrow. Right? Tomorrow's not even, it's not even promised to us. We're stewards of today, so we need to act today in an urgent manner to, to confront in a way that honors the Lord. So that's the manner, that's the spirit that we should confront brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, what do the action steps look like according to Jesus in Matthew chapter 18? Right? The spiritually mature believer goes to the stumbling, professing believer who sinned against him or her. The spiritually mature believer goes to the stumbling, professing believer who sinned against him or her. Tell him or her their fault privately. You tell him or her their fault privately. And then right underneath that, if you include others at this level, it's gossip. To include others at this level is gossip. Right? Verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained a brother. If he listens to you, you've gained a brother. Right? If we love others, as Jesus loves the church and laid down his life for him, all right, we'll go quickly to those that are trapped in sin and we'll work. And notice that I said work, right? Confronting these confrontations, are, they're laborious, right? They're, they're, they're tedious here. But we'll work through the issue together. And as a side note, this can be more than one confrontational conversation, right? We, we shouldn't have this expectation that we're going to have one confrontation or we're going to have one conversation and all of a sudden our work is done. They've been reconciled to God in the local church. All right, and, and, and while most, most of our confrontations will end at this level, we need to be prepared to exhibit some patience. All right, we need to be willing to, to have several sit-downs, to have several conversations. We need to be mindful of our non-verbals. We need to be disarming. We need to be kind, and we need to do it in a private place. All right, and we need to be prepared that the person may lash out at us when we confront them on their sin. But we need to understand that the lashing out, we don't need to take personal offense to it. We need to understand that it's coming from a person who's deceived by sin's deceitfulness, right? Maybe even memorize Ephesians six twelve. It says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, Right, that person that you're confronting, they're not your enemy. Right? They're not your opponent. They're a sheep that's strayed, and the Lord's calling you to persevere with this person as you seek to remind them of who they are in Christ Jesus. They've forgotten their identity along the way. 
if sin persists, include one to two other spiritually mature Christians and establish evidence. And as we close down, I want to tease that out a little bit. If sin persists, include one to two other spiritually mature Christians and establish evidence. Says, but if he doesn't listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Right? This is where we begin to bring in folks in the local church that are connected to this individual that you're confronting. Right? And, and the goal is for you guys to go in and to plead with this person to repent of their sin and be restored to God and to the local church. When I've confronted at this level, uh, there, these are some practical things that I personally uh, have done, uh, and I, I've included in your notes. Uh, I meet with spiritually mature Christians, and I come up with a plan, and I pray with them. I meet with spiritually mature Christians, come up with a plan, and pray. Right? You need to be on the same page with those that you're bringing with you, and you need to do this um, so that that you, you, you don't provoke this individual to anger, right? You wanna make sure that you don't have any blind spots going into the confrontation when you're including other people with you. So meet together, come up with a plan and pray. Secondly, the second thing I've done is I've uh, written a clear document to utilize in the confrontation, right? I've actually written the document with the sin or the sins that are persistent in a fellow believer's life and I spend time researching and writing what the scripture has to say about those particular sins or about sin in general. And every time I've done this, I've included, if you want to jot down to the side, uh, 1 John 1, 6 through, 6 through 10. And this should show us the seriousness of a brother or sister trapped in sin. It says, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus' son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, get this, if we say we have not sinned, if the person in front of you says he has not sinned, we make him, who? God. We make God a liar and his word is not in us. The person you're confronting needs to see the blasphemous nature of their sin. Right? For a believer to deny sin, according to 1 John, is for them to call God a liar. And I've said that to people that I've confronted before. Right? That, that, this is seriousness. And, and this brother or sister that's trapped in habitual unrepentant sin needs to feel the weightiness of their sin in that moment. They need to see the blasphemous nature of their sin. Vertically, sinning against God, horizontally sinning against others. And then the other piece that, we've, that I've included is include steps of repentance, right? If, if you gain a brother, if they see their sin and they want to repent, what are you going to give them? How, how, what does repentance look like for them? And what are you willing to do to help them as they repent, Right? We need to understand that con confronting, the confrontational conversation that we need to have with a brother or sister in sin, that's only the beginning. Right? We, we have to be willing to link arms with them and help them. And by God's grace, when this happens in the context of the local church, God's given us means of grace. Right, The steps of repentance can be... If it's, it could be cutting off relationships that need to be cut off, it can, it can make sure that they're regularly attending the Lord's Day corporate worship service, they're in small groups, they're meeting with you or some trusted brothers or sisters in Christ so that they can work out uh, their repentance. Make, make sure you give clear, tangible steps toward repentance, mile markers for them. 
And then finally, the last thing we need to ensure that we're doing is we need to direct them toward Jesus. We need to make sure that we're directing them toward Jesus. Right? I'm not their savior. You're not their savior. Right? And to establish this this codependent relationship is to lead them in idolatry, right? They're already in idolatry because they're neck deep in habitual sin. We don't want them to repent from this sin and lead them into another idolatry by them now being un, in an unhealthy way codependent on you because they're looking to you to be their savior. And then you end up getting burned out because of this unhealthy codependent relationship. You need to faithfully point them to Jesus Christ, right? He's the one alone who saves. He's the one that perseveres them, and he's the one that's using you to redirect their attention to him. And so we need to be a gospel-centric people. It's the gospel that drives um, uh, the, the, the repentance. It's, it's the gospel that drives obedience and, and takes rebellious sheep and brings them back into the fold. So there, there are 15 to 1,500 to 2,000 people that call Coastal home. 1,500 to 2,000 people that call Coastal home on a Sunday morning. Imagine with me for a moment that all 1,500 to 2,000 people gave this type of attention and care to one another. Could you imagine the impact that we could have just within this local church, the comprehensive care that we could provide for one another? Could you imagine for a moment the impact that we could have on this peninsula if we were to take what we've just walked through seriously. Imagine what we, the impact we'd have on our nation, on our world, as we bring that type of philosophy, that type of approach to being obedient to God, uh, not only seriously inside the context of this local church, but we began to, that, that just became this culture, this normative culture for us. And so I wanna invite you to pray, pray with us, pray with the leadership of the church, the pastors, the elders of this church, that, that this would be the the. the uh, this would be something that we take seriously as we seek to honor the Lord and persevere with one another as God's local church. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for your word. God, thank you that you, uh, you do make it clear for us, God. There's no, it's not gray. It's not, it's, you didn't mumble when you wrote your word. And, um, and so, God, I pray that you'd give us humility to apply your word so that we can uh, bring honor and glory to your name. And so, uh, Lord, thank you for the gospel. I thank you for saving us, God. I thank you that, uh, uh, Lord, we, we have all been wandering sheep, and, Lord, we are all prone to wander, and you use your Holy Spirit, you use your word, and you use this local church as a means um, to keep us in the flock. And so, Lord, we thank you for this time that we've had together. And, Lord, we, um, we thank you for our precious shepherd, Jesus. And we pray all this in his name. Amen.